What is good, everybody? This is Ross Jackson from Locked On Saints. You are listening to MTMV Sports. My team, my voice, your team, their voice. They got you covered every day, every time that you need it. Keep it locked. It looks something like this. This time it ain't a game, yeah. MJ with the six rings, yeah. Y'all better switch out your plays, yeah. On five with the little flame, yeah. This time it ain't a game, yeah. LeBron James coming through the lane, yeah. Y'all better switch out your plays, yeah. On five with the little flame, yeah. This time it ain't a game, yeah. I'm MJ with the six rings, yeah. Y'all better switch out your plays, yeah. On five with the little flame, yeah. This time it ain't a game, yeah. Hey, how y'all doing? This is Rick Sincere with MTNV Sports. I am elated to be joined today by Representative Jasmine Clark of House District 108. I'm representing Lilburn in the Mountain Park area. Um, how are you doing today, Dr. Clark? I'm doing great. It's a pretty beautiful day outside. Nice morning. Got off to an early start today, so doing pretty good. Listen, I, I call you Dr. Clark for a reason. Like, how? Okay, so you've come from a mighty long way in the sciences, right? And so uh, we'll talk about that blend in just a second. But give me a little bit of your journey in science. All right, so um, I've pretty much been a science nerd my whole life. Um, my dad is a doctor, my mom is a nurse, and I pretty much grew up thinking that I was going to be a, a medical doctor. Um, I went to college in Knoxville, University of Tennessee. Don't hold that against me. Um, and after, um, you know, I actually completed an honors research project. Um, I was a part of the honors program. And so I had a choice on what path I wanted to take. And so I was allowed to complete an honors research project. And when I did that, and it kind of steered me in the direction of scientific research. Um, and so instead of going to medical school, I actually opted to go to graduate school. Um, that's where I ended up at Emory University, and I got a PhD in microbiology, which is the study of, you know, microorganisms like bacteria, viruses, fungus, parasites, and my particular concentration was on the study of viruses. So how was it in graduate school at Emory University, right? Like, I know, like, I went to Moore School of Medicine. People who know me, they know, right? I went to Moore School of Medicine. I did my um, graduate work there, and then I did my postdoc at Emory. But I saw graduate students going through that program, right? How was that time when you were in graduate school there? How was that time um, when you were at Emory? Uh, I will say it was tough. Um, it was just rigorous and time-consuming, and if I'm being honest, I was in graduate school at a time in my life where I was also starting a family. So it was a lot. Um, you know, there were days where I was like, maybe I should just like ask if I can just do a master's and like, you know, go about my way. Or maybe I should just see what type of job I can get with the bachelors that I already have. But, um, you know, I persisted. I stuck through it. And, um, you know, I eventually got that opportunity to defend my dissertation. And it was probably the biggest sigh of relief that I will ever, ever, ever take in my life. It's just like getting through that process. But now that I've gone through the process, I feel like I can do anything. I don't, I, just, I don't know. Um, I don't know really how to describe just how long and um, difficult the journey can be. But then when you finally get to the finish line. It's like, if I can do this, I literally can do anything. No, look, those are facts. Those are facts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, um, 
So some people see science and politics as just like completely um, different. I, I think by now people even forgot that I introduced you as a representative, right? <laughs> so I bet at that point people have just forgot, right? But let's get back to that. Some people see that science and, and politics is completely different. When were you able to see the, the two and know that you could blend them? So to be honest, I also thought that science and politics should remain as separate as possible. Now, there's always a little bit of politics in science anyway. Um, if you've ever had to write a grant and, you know, you know, try to get grant money from the NIH or, you know, any other, you know, federal entity, then you know there's always a little bit of politics in science. But for the most part, that's kind of where we we stop. That's where the science and politics intersects. Um, but I will be honest, in 2016, um, when Donald Trump was elected, one of the first things he did after his election um, and after his inauguration was he started talking about climate science and not in a positive way. He pretty much attacked the science community and particularly, particularly the climate science community. And so um, I think it was kind of like a trigger um, or a moment where you realize um, you can't stay silent. Um, it, even, even though I'm not a climate scientist, I'm a microbiologist. But in general, I just realized that, you know, you, you, you can't stay silent when someone is attacking something um, like science or facts or data, like, because those are the things that we need, that those are the things that kind of help us uh, continue as a society. So you know, I, um, I, along with several scientists around the globe, decided to do a march very similar to the Women's March, but it was called the March for Science. And right here in Atlanta, we did one and I led it. Um, I was democratically chosen to lead this march and 10,000 people showed up. And it was a moment, it was in that moment that I realized there are enough people that care about science enough to show up on a Saturday us through the streets of uh it's like the Canberra park edgewood area you know in the name of science and so that was the first time where i will say i found my voice um and that was the first time where i realized that my science voice was important and then from there um i was i got bitten by the bug and i realized like i can't stop here this march can't be the end it is the beginning um so it was the beginning of my journey to really advocating for science in policy making and so that brought me to the road where i decided to put my name on the ballot to actually have a seat at the table and advocate from the table instead of from outside of the room wow i remember that march and i remember hearing about that march i didn't know you were leading that Yes, I was the leader of the Atlanta March for Science. That is and incredible. And trust me, it was, not a, it was not something I did on my own. It was a huge team of people that helped. Um, but I was chosen, I guess, to be like the leader, the director of the march. That, that is incredible. That's incredible. Look, I, I, I need to know this. We're currently in a situation where we're in a global pandemic. It's, it's crazy. Everything's different, right? Um, but you're at like the forefront of it, right? Um, because you're in the room with people who can make policies or make changes. How has your background in science aided you to find ways to deal with this pandemic? So I will say this, I feel like um, my background in microbiology and my expertise in viral transmission is being completely wasted 
right now. And I wish that I had more opportunities to help drive policy when it comes to the pandemic. Um, but the way it works in Georgia, uh, we declared a public health emergency. And so the governor, um, once we declared that public health emergency, we basically gave the governor all of the control to handling the pandemic. Um, and so what I will say, though, however, is that I have used my scientific background to be a voice um, to the people. So a lot of people just didn't know what was going on. So I used my voice, I used my platform to just explain to people what coronavirus is, what a pandemic is, what is going on and how we stop it. Um, and I've also used that voice to hold um, the governor's office and the Department of Public Health accountable. Um, I made quite a bit of news a few months back when I noticed that they were kind of, I wouldn't say manipulating the data because that's a pretty strong accusation, but I would say that they were presenting the data in a way that did not make any logical sense for anyone who has ever studied statistics ever. So um, I called them out on it. And, um, you know, I, I just called out the inconsistencies. In a nutshell, they had made a nice bar graph that showed this nice, pretty downslope. And at first glance, it looked like, oh, wow, the number of cases are going down. And then you looked at the x-axis and the dates were out of order. And so they basically had put the dates in an order to make a down slope instead of putting the dates in the correct order, which actually showed that there was no down slope. There wasn't even a plateau. It was just more of, it was kind of irregular, but if you, um, if you normalize the line, it was actually going up. And so it was just one of those moments where I was like, this is why we need science voices. This is why you need people who understand data in positions of power that have a platform to call out things and hold people accountable. So even though I'm not in the decision-making room right now, they know I'm sitting outside of the room watching every decision they make. And if I have something to say about it, I will say it. No, that was necessary. That was necessary. I remember when that happened. Um, and I remember looking at the data. I'm sitting in the room with my, um, with my wife and I'm, I'm looking at the char charts too. And I'm like, baby, this is wrong. Like, this is wrong and this is off, right? And as a scientist, you get a chance. You know, you look at data all the time, right? And you know when data right. is insignificant or being told, um, being, you know, kind of presented in an in a incorrect way. And love that. Love that. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Um, let me ask you this question. We are in Georgia and we're semi-open, like very back to normal almost, right? If you're driving oh, yeah. in a particular area. I was area, just sitting in traffic today. <laughs> right, right. And that we're, we, I almost feel like we shouldn't be, but <laughs> yeah. I need to talk to you. Um, do you feel like we're too open at this point? Do you feel like we're, we're not truly respecting um, the pandemic that's still around? Yes, I do. And the reason why I say this, for, look, I understand that businesses wanted to get back to normal as much as possible to get their money. Um, I understand that workers, you know, wanted to get back to work. I get all of those things. But the, the situation is when you're dealing with a pandemic virus, you cannot be business as usual. That is just not how pandemics work. It has never worked for any pandemic in the history of pandemics. Pandemics are disruptive. That is what they are. And you have to be very deliberate in your approach to dealing with a pandemic. I believe we opened too early 
when we opened at around Memorial Day. I felt like that was ill-advised. It did not make any sense based on the data that we already had. And every prediction of what would happen if we opened that early happened. Like, you know, there was a lag and everyone was like, oh, I think everything's fine. I think he actually made a good decision. And then all of a sudden there was this burst in number of cases and a surge. And anyone who was paying attention knew that was going to happen. That was very predictable. And so I think what we're going to see now is the same thing or something very similar with the reopening of schools and the reopening of college campuses, the relaxation of a lot of the guidelines, where even though, um, you know, even the White House task force has said, you know, y'all need to pump the brakes a little bit and maybe roll back some. Don't roll, you don't have to shut everything down, but you know, maybe tell restaurants to cut back on the in-person dining, maybe cut down y'all's large gathering rules to, you know, back to 10 instead of 50 and 100 or whatever they are now. You know, you know, honestly, maybe your school should not be opening at this moment um, and you need to mandate masks. All of these things are things that the White House task force, a task force that I probably have not agreed with a whole lot, even I agree with them. These are things that needed to be done. But our governor in this moment, I think, has um, erred on the side of ego and he doesn't want to be wrong. And the thing about it is egos can kill. And that's what we're seeing. 6,000 plus people have died due to ego and people not being willing to say, you know what, maybe I got this wrong. Maybe I acted a little prematurely. Here's what we're going to do to try to mitigate some of the damage that has been done and to prevent future damage. But we're not seeing that. And so I, I agree that, um, we're a little too open. Uh, we should not be experiencing full-blown five o'clock traffic. Uh, rush hour traffic should not be happening right now. Um, you know, to be honest, in some places, like my children are home from school. I'm not sending them into the school building. And I think in my area, the number of people who are actually in the school building is actually pretty low. So it's probably safer than in some other areas of the state where pretty much everyone is back in the school building and there's only a small minority uh, population of people that have chosen to do digital learning and um, add that to the university system of Georgia, basically deciding that in-person is going to happen. Dorms are going to get, you know, filled um, all of those things. I, I do see in a month from now, or maybe in a couple of weeks from now, we see another surge in the number of cases. And a lot of those cases are going to be younger people um, and including children. And while we had not seen a lot of deaths in children, unfortunately, and I really hope I'm wrong on this, I think we're going to see those numbers go up too. Wow. Um, wow. I don't know why our um, our governor and I seems our government seems to be very aggressive um, in wanting us to open as fast as possible, and I don't know why that's um, why that's happening. I'm noticing it even like you said, the University System of Georgia. Um, so I'm at Georgia Gwinnett College, and we're open, right? Yeah. Like we're opening. Um, we're open right now. I just left school yesterday, and so <laughs> yeah. um, and there is a mask mandate. So there's, there's definitely a mask mandate um, and they're being as careful as possible. At the same time, 
um, we're still as a teacher, it's a different thing to get a to get a email from a student that says, hey, I think I might have exposure or I have been exposed. What should we do? Right. That's a lot different right. than saying my tire blew out. Right. Um, I yeah. Can't make it to or class I'm, today. I'm sitting in traffic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's a completely different um, email or different messages I'm getting nowadays. Um, anyway, let's let's talk a little bit more about you and and kind of you know your journey. Um, I need to know you're teaching right now as a professor, and the the reason I notice if you're listening is because we tried to get this in, we're getting this interview scheduled, and I'm like, okay, I got to teach on these days, and she's like, I got to teach on these days, and we kind of match on on the teaching days, right? So you're teaching as a professor. Um, you're a mom of two. Right. Yes. And along with your responsibilities as a representative, how are you finding ways to balance all of these very important things? So balance is something that I feel like I work on every day. Um, I am doing a lot. I am juggling a lot. And the truth is, um, no matter how many things I add to my plate, there's only 24 hours in a day. And so um, that means there's a lot of overlap. So right now I'm, I'm momming right now. My kids are upstairs. They're doing digital learning right before this interview. You know, I made sure everyone was in place. Everyone's in class, you know, everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, uh, my groceries largely get delivered um, along with other things. I still cook though. I still like to cook and cook meals, but um, you know, the parenting side of things, um, luckily my children are old enough um, that they are pretty independent. Um, and so I make sure that they're okay, but for the most part, they're pretty independent. And then when I do have those free times, they get that free time um, and free time. But, you know, the little bit of free time that I get, they, it belongs to them. Um, when it comes to, you know, being an elected official, uh, the interesting thing is right now, this is my first time running for office at the same time that I am already elected. So I'm running as an incumbent. And what I'm finding is that constituent services during a pandemic is is quite massive. Uh, I am answering emails, uh, several hundred emails a day. Um, and then on top of that, I still need to run a campaign where I need to try to reach about 15,000 voters and tell them who I am and ask them to vote for me. And uh, so that is a lot. And that takes up a lot of my time. And then lecturing as well takes up quite a bit of my time. And I think the part that takes up the most time is grading. Um, and so I have to literally, I live by a calendar. I think it's the best way to, to put my life. Everything is in the calendar. Everything is scheduled. Even when I'm going to grade things, you know, when to give this quiz, when to open this module for class, you know, um, when to make sure, you know, when to set a meeting. I'm, I make, uh, I schedule when to schedule something else. So I make sure that I give myself enough time to actually schedule a meeting. So, you know, it's, it's very methodical. Um, but honestly, it's kind of the way I've always been. I've always been kind of a busybody anyway, and I thrive when I'm busy. And so um, as much as it seems very tumultuous, and I'm not going to lie and say there are not days where I do feel overwhelmed. Overall, I actually really appreciate being this busy. Awesome. I understand exactly what you mean by that. I understand exactly <laughs> what you mean. Look, there's a big issue right now. Um, 
And it's been an issue for a while in this country. And I'm talking about the racial divide, right? Where right now there's um, African-Americans, even some Latino Americans, um, actually a lot of minorities in this country feel like we're being unfairly and unequally targeted um, and even arrested, right? And in some cases killed um, by cops in this country. What role can government play in addressing these type of concerns? Well, I think the first role that government needs to play is acknowledging that there is an issue. Um, We make laws all the time based on there being an issue that needs to be fixed. And so we can't fix it if we don't even acknowledge that it exists. But once you acknowledge that it exists, then you can start to take steps to, you know, mitigate the damage that is being done. So, for example, um, I am a part of the Democratic Caucus in um, the Georgia State Legislature, and we put together a package of 12 bills that we call the Justice for All bills. And um, I can't name all 12, but just to give you name a few, um, these these bills would do things like um, outlaw no-knock warrants, which should have been outlawed um, back in the 90s after... um, the Red Dogs kicked that, uh, I can't think of her name, Katherine Johnson, um, and, and killed her. Um, you know, we, the, it also talks about oversight of district attorneys. So what happened in the Ahmaud Arbery case where each district attorney basically had a free-for-all to let those guys off the hook without even so much as attempting to try to get justice for Ahmad. Um, we, we don't need to continue that. So um, DA oversight um, and lots of just other uh, bills. And I, it's escape, all of the bills are escaping me right now, um, but I can definitely get you that list. Um, but there are things that can be done. But I think, again, you first have to acknowledge that there's a problem. And then you have to acknowledge that you want to fix the problem. Um, It is still very difficult for some of my colleagues in the legislature to say systemic racism. Like asking them to say systemic racism is like asking them to curse in church. Um, Asking them to say Black Lives Matter is like asking them, you know, to swear to their great grandmother. You know, it's just they... It's it's hard. It does not come. It won't come off of their tongues. It makes their faces contort, their shoulders tense up, and they get real red in the face because it just they can't bring themselves to acknowledge it, let alone actually say it out loud. And as long as we have people in power that won't even acknowledge systemic racism, we cannot fix systemic racism. And systemic racism, again, it's built into systems and it's, it's bigger than police. It's bigger than police. It's the, our police system, our justice system, our education system, our healthcare system, and it's all interwoven and interconnected. But because it's all systems and all of those systems are connected to each other. But if we don't address it, if we don't acknowledge it, then we can't address it. So I, I asked the question from a minority standpoint, um, but the real question is, is it, a, is it all minorities that feel like this or is this a black issue? I think that there are certain minorities that feel this way. Um, and I think there are black Americans that feel this way. Um, the, the truth is, 
there, black Americans are uh, racially targeted in different ways than maybe some other minorities are. So that does happen. But I do think that unequal justice in general um, can be applied to minority populations. So, um, and, and, it, and it shouldn't, we should not have unequal justice no matter what. And th so that's the problem. And then you also have all these other issues of like, what is black and who is black? And, you know, if I am black and Latino and do, do I identify as black? Do I identify as Latino? If I am, if I am black, but I am not um, a descendant of slavery because I came from another country, you know, do I fall into this realm? And so, you know, that's where, you know, kind of blending it all and just saying minorities um, in general kind of helps break down some of those barriers to even getting the conversation started. Because once you try to parse out and just get very, very specific about who we're talking about, um, you start to lose people um, because, you know, you get in the weeds too much. And then have you, have you ever had an argument with someone where you're talking about one thing and then they bring up something completely different. And now you find yourself arguing about something completely different than what the bigger argument was about. But now you are so in the weeds about that new thing that you've completely lost the actual goal of the argument, which was, you know, the bigger, you know, issue that you were trying to address. And so that's why um, I try to not get too bogged down with, you know, are we talking about Black? And if we're talking about Black, are we talking about Eidos? And if we're talking about Eidos, then do we exclude people? And what about Latinos that also identify as Black? And what about biracial or multiracial people? You know, when you get into all of that, then um, we, we lose our focus. I, I know exactly. Um, and you said, do I know about those type of arguments? Yeah, I've been in them lately on, um, on Twitter. <laughs> And on Facebook, yes. <laughs> um, dealing with um, <laughs> dealing with people who generally don't see a problem, right? And and who mm -hmm. genuinely don't see a problem, who say, "Hey, you know what? There is no issue, and you guys are making an issue. You're making up the issue, right? Um, there's no issue. There's no problem. And I think you're just being extra sensitive about some issue that doesn't really exist. And I'm like, okay. Um, and then we get into that argument and then we take off into five other arguments. Um, right. And this is all happening in like a hockey sports group, right? Yes. <laughs> so it gets really weird. Um, okay. Let, let's talk. Um, I gotta, I gotta steer this situation towards sports a little bit, right? Because that's kind of okay. what we do. Let's all right. talk some sports. Let's, let's talk it. some sports a, a little bit. Who's your favorite team? Um, what, what sport are we talking about? Football, awesome. Love basketball. it. Let's rock. All right. Cool. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's kick off with football. All right. So I'm Atlanta born and raised and I was raised to be a Falcons fan. All right. Let's talk about something different. Um, so we'll go to, um, <laughs> I hate the Falcons hey. so much. Um, so let, I, let, I mean, like I said, Atlanta born and raised, I rock with them in the good times and the bad. <laughs> let, let's talk about your Falcons. Um, so, Okay. Were you around when they went to the Super Bowl? Yes, I was okay. around. Which, yes, yes. You mean the and, and, and I'm Bowl. talking about the last time, yeah. right? The last yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, okay. How would you describe the city of Atlanta headed to that Super Bowl? Excited, uh, invigorated, uh, refreshed, just like anticipating finally 
bringing home a championship. I think before that, we felt like we had a little bit of a curse on us. Like we can never actually, you know, get there. And then, you know, unfortunately, once we get there, we can't actually, you know, bring it all the way home. That still is the case. But I mean, you know, we were so excited. Um, I haven't seen excitement like that in a long time. I No, I, will, I take that back. Um, the next time I saw that much excitement was when Black Panther came out. So it was <laughs> like, just for all, everyone was just really excited. The city was on, was, was on fire. It was just so exciting to find, and everyone was buying their tickets to go to Texas. And it was like, it was a really big deal. I'll never was, forget it. The city was on fire. I remember um, you got Ludacris and, and all these artists, <laughs> right? I'm putting on all these concerts. It got really, really ridiculous. It was awesome. Um, I mean, it was awesome for you guys. But um, <laughs> I'm a Saints <laughs> fan. So, and oh, hopefully, gosh. <laughs> not see, you understand, right? And so um, now, I need to ask this question. This season, you're looking at an older Matt Ryan, right? You guys have gotten back um, Todd Gurley. So Todd Gurley, who's, who's been a pride of the state, right, um, is now back, right? And he's now back mm-hmm. and playing for, um, for, for the Falcons. You have Julio Jones. Um, are you excited about this upcoming season? I mean, we're in this situation. We have this, you know, pandemic. People won't be able to go to the games or tailgate. But are you excited about the fact that, you know, you should have a good team this year? Um. Not maybe excited as I was the year that we went to the Super Bowl. You know, I think what uh, us Falcons fans need is like, you know, just an injection of just like something good happening. Mm. And so hopefully this is a season where we do see things turn around. Um, But, you know, you get kind of tired of getting disappointed. Um, And even though, you know, even though you love them, you know, the disappointment still wears on you. And so I am excited uh, about the lineup. I would, I, I, you know, to be honest, I am not a Matt Ryan hater. I don't think that Matt Ryan is not a good player, but I would have liked to see maybe some fresh blood in the quarterback quarterback position um, just to see if it brought something new and maybe that's the link. But stats wise, like on paper, Matt Ryan is not a bad QB. So we're not talking about, um, we're not talking about a guy who uh, doesn't have the talent. And maybe if he has both his talent and the supporting lineup, you know, to, to make things happen, then maybe we see something different this year. Um, but if I'm being really honest, you know, he's been around here for a while and I wouldn't mind, you know, seeing somebody else kind of come in and, and try out at that position. And, and maybe they are the, um, maybe they are the link that we need to finally, you know, make it all the way. So, you know, um, we'll see. It's kind of different, you know, with the pandemic, I'm a little uh, on edge about having professional sports in general, um, even, Mm. you know, basketball and everything else. Um, I I just worry about um, the long-term effects. And I think about the long-term health effects, um, I just worry about, and I don't, I mean, I don't know them. They don't know me, but I do kind of worry about, especially for younger players, the long-term health effects that they could experience from having COVID with the mentality that, you know, I'm young and I'm athletic and basically I am, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, You know, I can't be touched. Like, invincible, yeah. 
I'm invincible. That's what I was looking for. I couldn't think of that word. I'm invincible. And then realizing that uh, COVID doesn't necessarily discriminate that way. It doesn't say, oh, you're healthy, so I'm going to give you mild symptoms, or you're not so healthy, so I'm going to give you really bad symptoms. Um, yes, that happens, but sometimes the opposite happens. And so um, I, I just, con I'm concerned about some of our younger players um, in the sports seasons. But outside of that, outside of just my genuine concern for their futures, you know, we'll see what football brings. I like the fact that you bring up that Matt Ryan um, may not be that guy. And he, <laughs> in your in your opinion, I mean that's 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 almost what you say. He may not be that guy to take you, to get you over the hump, right? Right. Um, yeah. And it's not to say anything bad about him personally. Like I said, on paper, he's amazing. He's got the stats. You know, if I were to just if I was just looking at his resume, I'm like, yeah, that's it. That's the guy. But you know, maybe we just need. You know, just something, an, an infusion of something new. A fresh face at the quarterback. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, Atlanta has won a championship recently with the Atlanta United, right? Have you had yes. a chance to get to any of those United games? Um, and and yes. do you understand that, that United vibe? Oh, my gosh. That being at an Atlanta United game is so fun. Um, you don't sit down. You basically sing the whole time. Um, and it's just like it's a different energy. Um, my daughter plays soccer. Um, she she does a lot of sports, but uh, she did play soccer for a little while. And so, you know, I and I understand the game of soccer after she started to play. And, you know, the Atlanta United fans, it's just, it's a, it's a sight to behold. You know, they are really into it. They are, they are um, loyal. Uh, they are energetic. Um, like I said, when I was there, like we barely sat down the whole time. We were standing up there. We were singing songs. I didn't know the songs at the beginning of the game. By the end of the game, I knew all the songs and I was singing along and chants and different things. Um, so it's, it's fun. I, I mean, I really do like it. I really like, I feel like, I feel like Atlanta United was something that the city needed. I think so too. Um, like as, as a resident here, right. Um, mm -hmm. I do, I do see that. I saw the same thing you saw where before the Super Bowl it was ridiculous. Right. And then, <laughs> um, and then you drive the streets right after the Super Bowl and it was so dead and you can feel that. Oh yeah. You can feel it all throughout the city. Um, and while I was happily feeling it, right, because I'm a Saints <laughs> fan, um, but, <laughs> but still I felt it for, for my city, right? When, it, when the Atlanta United came, I have no ill will towards them, right? Mm -hmm. So I can, like, dive into the euphoria. And, oh, my yeah. God, it was so electric. And it was amazing. And it everybody was. felt it. Yes. My students felt it, right? So my students came to class, and they were all, like, wearing their United stuff, and, and they were rocking yes. out with it. It was, a, it was a great vibe in the city. Um. Let's let's get back for a second. Um, you represent uh South. You're representative of Lilburn, South Gwinnett area, mm -hmm. right? Um, why that particular area? So that's the area that I live in. Um, and so the way it works is you have to run in your area. So you, I can't run for office in like South Georgia or North Gwinnett and live in Lilburn. So I ran for my area. And the interesting thing about when I ran is the person I was running against before I put my name on the ballot, which I did actually pretty late in the game. He had been campaigning for a while when I decided I was going to run. Um, 
he was running unopposed. And in this area, um, I don't know if you know much about the Lilburn area, but it is beautifully diverse. There's so many different countries represented, languages represented, religions represented. It's a diversity of age. Like we got the really, really young and, you know, the young at heart. Um, We've got just, it's so like, it's just a mixed bag and it's so beautiful. And um, I felt like I would be a better representative for that diversity. So not only did I run on a science platform, but I also ran on the idea that we need to have an inclusive Georgia, um, an inclusive Georgia that um, recognizes communities like mine that are not homogenous. They are very heterogeneous and you know uh, very diverse and everyone should be included. Um, everyone should feel included in the workings of the government. Awesome. Um, so here's my here's my uh, last question. You talked about um, in your I, I kind of saw one of your uh, campaigns, right? One of your campaign ads, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, you're talking about uh, radical redistricting um, and saying that it was a real threat and it's something that we needed to be concerned about. Um, for those people who don't know what that is, can you tell us what that is? And then um, tell us why you believe well, well, tell us why it's such a huge part of your platform. So redistricting occurs every decade. So it happened in 2001, it happened in 2011, and it will happen again in 2021. What redistricting is, is the redrawing of both the state lines as well as the federal or congressional lines when it comes to your representation. Um, And so we redraw these lines. What we're supposed, what you're supposed to do is draw the lines so that each representative and each senator and each um, congressperson represents basically an equal number of people. So you have to take things into consideration like growth of an area, you know, movement into an area or movement out of an area. Um, and you, you want everyone to, because you don't want one representative representing 100,000 people and another representative only representing 20,000 people. Like that doesn't make sense. So you need to spread it out. So it's like putting together a puzzle of, you know, where the people are and where um and where they're represent or and who will represent them. And um, along with that, and so this is why the census is so important. Um, and so I'm gonna just plug really fast, my2020census.gov. If you have not filled out your census, please do so. It brings money to your community, money for things like fire, police, education, uh, resources, all of that stuff, but not just that, it also determines your representation. Um, Because if you are not counted, it is like you do not exist. Um, And if they don't think you exist, then they're not gonna make sure that you are represented properly. So um, redistricting is basically like filling out a puzzle where you know they try to make it as even as possible. If, for example, we've had a lot of growth, we might have to add a congressional seat. Maybe we've had so much growth that we need a whole new district because there's no way to divide it up any other way. Um, and that possibly will happen in 2021, by the way. The problem with this is that it is a partisan process. Whoever is in the majority in the state legislature gets to draw those lines. And so, For example, um, if you see that right now your party is losing power because 
slowly but surely, the other party is starting to win elections that they weren't winning 10 years ago because demographics have changed, things have shifted, more people have moved into an area. So now all of a sudden, you know, you were solidly one color. And I'm just use red as an example. You were solidly red um, in 2011. And now all of a sudden that district is voting blue or that district is very purple and it's no longer reliable. If you have a chance to redraw the lines, you'll draw it in a way so that um, you you um, solidify it being red again. Like I'm gonna move something over. I'm gonna take this particular neighborhood out because that particular neighborhood has been shown and vote a little bit more blue. So we're gonna cut them out and then we'll go over here and add in this neighborhood that happens to vote a little bit more red. And so you fix the puzzle pieces to make sure that you hold on to power. That is what radical redistricting is, also known as gerrymandering. Um, gerrymandering is antithetical to democracy. It takes away the people's voices by basically allowing the representatives to choose their voters instead of letting the voters choose their representation. And so um, I am a proponent of nonpartisan redistricting where a redistricting, an independent commission comes in and draws the line and they are not, um, they are not driven by, you know, partisan um, motivations. That's not what they're, they are just there to divide the people up, you know, based on the communities and, you know, things like that. Like there are parts where you might live in a neighborhood and the front of your neighborhood is in one district and the back of your neighborhood is in another district because the only way to ensure that you kept power was to divide that neighborhood up. That neighborhood was too powerful together. So, you know, things like that. It's just, you know, it's a game. Like I said, it's a computer generated game of where can I put this line to make sure I don't lose my power? And I think that's a very dangerous game to play when we're talking about democracy. Wow. Wow. Um, there's a lot of people who don't even know this is happening. And, you know, if that's the thing. Is, this is not, these are the things that are not talked about. So another reason why I ran for office is to be more transparent about the processes, because I think there's just too many things that go on that no one knows about until it's already happened. And so, you know, a lot of people, they know to fill out the census, but they don't know why. They don't understand that not filling out the census, and if enough people don't fill out the census, you lose about, uh, you lose millions of dollars going into your community. Now, we're not talking a little bit of money here. We're talking millions of dollars. Um, they don't know that when you're voting in this upcoming election for your state legislator, that you are voting for who will draw the lines in 2021. All of these things are on the ballot, um, and you know, I think it's purposeful that they don't tell people that these things are on the ballot because if people don't know, then they won't make their decisions based on that. So how can, how can, um, how can people help? Like, how can people get on board with you, support you? Um, how can people, you know, do things to make sure that there are people like you, educated scientists, right, um, who kind of know what's going on? How can people make sure that people like you are the ones representing them? Well, I think the best way to do this is to first know who is running in your area. 
I think a lot of times uh, we get to the ballot box and then we see all these names and we know the president and we might know the con congressional people um, because they have TVs and I mean, they have uh, TV ads and things like that or radio ads. Um, but then you get down to these other justice and you care about the things that are going on when it comes to policing and things like that. Then you should pay attention to district attorney races. You should pay attention to sheriff races that run the jails. Um, you should pay attention to your county commissioners because they're the ones that decide the budgets for the county. Um, and then at the state level, you um, should care about, um, you know, people like your state representative, like myself, or um, your state senator, because they're making those state laws. They're the ones who are making the laws that say don't text and drive. They're the ones that are making the laws that say, you know, um, you know they're the ones that are like, really determining um, a lot of the laws that we have to live by at this moment. Um, we are also responsible for things like how much we fund education. I mean, just now, we just cut a billion dollars from education. That's a lot of money to cut from education during a pandemic. We also cut about $400 million from healthcare during a pandemic. You know, they're the ones who can uh, increase access to healthcare and health insurance and all these things in the, at the state level. And so they're just as important as president, like if not more important. And so if you wanna learn more about myself, you can go to my website. It is Jasmine, like the flower, the number four GA. So that is J-A-S-M-I-N-E-4-G-A.com. And there you will find information about my platform, ways to get involved, a place to uh, make a contribution if you feel oh so compelled, and just learn about me and what I'm about and what I stand for and what I'm fighting for in the Georgia State Legislature. And, um, you know, and if you don't live in the Lilburn area, if you know someone who does, then, you know, send them my way. Awesome. Thank you so much. We truly appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Awesome. All right, y'all, listen, this is Rick Sincere with MTNV Sports. Thankful, thankful um, to have um, Representative Jasmine Clark here with us today. Uh, hopefully you've learned something today. Hopefully you got something from this. And hopefully you go out and find ways to support her in her campaign efforts. Have a beautiful day. God bless. This time it ain't a game, yeah. MJ with the six rings, yeah. Y'all better switch out your plays, yeah. On five with the low flame, yeah. This time it ain't a game, yeah. LeBron James coming through the lane, yeah. Y'all better switch out your plays, yeah. On five with the low flame, yeah. This time it ain't a game, yeah. I'm MJ with the six rings, yeah. Y'all better switch out your plays, yeah. On five with the low flame, yeah. This time it ain't a game, yeah. LeBron James coming through the lane, yeah. Y'all better switch out your plays, yeah. On five with the low flame, yeah. Coach says it's my time, yeah. The game on.